All right, Ong Namo, Gurudev Namo. Nice to see everybody on here. And uh, I just remembered that I never sent the questions to my email, so I wouldn't, but luckily I'm able to uh, remember them because I really, really like the questions this round. And if you're wondering where to submit a question, we put up a question sticker like 24 hours before on the Close Friends of Bruja Report. And we just started doing it this way again because before when I wasn't on Instagram, it was all just kind of like free for all on the Zoom. But sometimes it takes people a really long time to get talking. So I need a couple of feeder questions to get everything going here. Um, but one of the first questions we got, and we'll just go right into it today because I thought it was so great. And um, it, in, it was Tanya, and she asked, How can I meditate without falling asleep? Five minutes into every meditation, I fall asleep and I'm like, honey, I feel you on that. I feel you on that. And there's so many, you know, if there's one thing that has never really been a big part of my practice that I always felt needed to be, it was meditation. The longer you can sit for, the better. And I had, my meditation practice began in like, I think 2011. And I remember, you know, the first few times I try, you know, sit down, be quiet. And it was always like, from the very first meditation to the last one, it's like, the timer's broken. <laughs> like the timer has to be broken. Like, I feel like I've been here for so, so, so long. Like what's going on? And um, I meditated pretty consistently from like 2011 to 2019. And I never really saw any results. Now, the thing about meditation is it's kind of like stopping drinking or stopping smoking or anything like that, or getting better sleep. You only really notice the effects of it like quite a bit after. So like after a month or whatever of meditating, you'll start to really see the effects. But I, I just felt like I was a bad meditator because my problem, like I'm not really a sleeper. I sleep at night, but I'm not a napper. I'm not one to really like drowse or whatever. Um, but I would just get bored to fucking tears. And honestly, like every time I sat down and got quiet, it'd be just, you know, me thinking, sitting down basically. And then I'd feel really bad about thinking. And I noticed that there was like a few meditations I had had over the years where like, I really wanted to be there where it was just like, oh my God, I'm so sick of thinking. I'm so sick of the input. I'm so sick of all of this stuff. I just want to go and get quiet. And I, when I went to it with that intention, man, that meditation worked good. That meditation worked so good. It was like, great, I can take a break from the constant like churning that's going on in my mind and go focus on something else, um, you know, and go just kind of like reconnect with myself. And man, I would feel like so good after something like that. And those meditations, I never timed. It was just like, all right, that's enough chatter. Let me go and just get still and see what happens. And and I was like, after meditations like that, I really felt like I was getting the full benefits of it. But still every day for years, I would have, like go put my timer on and make myself meditate. And, and I just hated it. It felt like something else that I just had to do in order to be spiritual. And it never really resonated with me. And I would just get super bored. So I, after watching the Wild Wild Country Osho documentary on Netflix, um, I'd always had a lot of resistance to Osho, always had a lot of resistance to Tantra because I was super, super locked up sexually. And so people that were, you know, if you've ever met like a Tantrika or someone that reads a lot of Osho, they're very connected with their sexuality, you know? And I grew up in a sex cult. So I was just like, why? Like, why do we have to mix spirituality and sex? Like, can't they just be like, not, you know, I was like the Catholic church would have been ideal for me at that stage because I was just really locked up. I hadn't done any work around shame or anything like that yet. Um, so when I watched the Osho documentary, I was like, ha ha, like I knew it. I knew there was something fucked up about all of this. But then by the time I got to the end of it, I was like, I knew that people don't become really successful spiritual teachers like that teaching smoke and mirrors, teaching bullshit. Like I knew that there had to, that this person only, and that was something that they didn't show at all. And these Osho, in this Osho documentary, they didn't show at all like what it was that he was teaching. Just like, here's the outfits that he was wearing. Here's the drugs that he was taking. And here's a whole bunch about like the people that worked for him. 
but I knew that he had been a scholar for like 40 years before ever becoming a spiritual teacher. And I was like, I'm going to look into, I'm going to look into uh, this guy's teachings. Cause I've noticed now that like, whatever I have a lot of resistance towards is usually something that I really need to investigate. So for example, when I first started hearing alternate opinions on the coronavirus pandemic, uh, when I first started hearing them, I was like, oh my God, can't you guys just fucking do this thing with the rest of us and stop complaining and just social distance and just wear your mask and quit complaining so we can get through this as soon as possible. I was like, I felt like we only had one tool and that's like, we can social distance and we can wear masks. And now I've got these fucking crazy women over here encouraging everybody to like buck the system. What are you doing? <laughs> you know, and, uh, and I, and it was I've noticed now that like where I have a lot of resistance is usually exactly where I have to look. So when I notice that coming up in myself, I notice myself getting really judgmental, notice myself being like, I'm so much smarter than you. How could you say something so unspiritual, so unevolved? When I feel that superiority rising up in me, I, I now know well enough that I need to go and investigate it. And I always find something that I really needed to know because what you most need to know is always where you least want to look. And usually that door, you know, that portal into greater understanding is like, there's no fucking way I need to research that. I know I already fucking know that I don't need to look into that whatsoever. Therefore I will not. And la, 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 la. Like if you have resistance to anything, it's going to keep showing up right in front of you. It's a lot better to go in, explore it, educate yourself, and then say no if you still want to say no, than it is to just say like, I refuse to acknowledge that this is a viable path whatsoever. Because everyone in the whole world thinks they're right. Everyone has a good reason to think that they're right. And depending on what claim you want to see as true, like you can always find evidence to corroborate that. You can find whatever intention you put into Google or DuckDuckGo or whatever, like seek and ye shall find. So whatever it is that you want to be true, you'll find more evidence to substantiate that claim. So I was like, you know what? I'm going to look into Osho and I'm not even going to look into Osho, like, you know, post-transformation. I'm going to read books by Bhagwan Sri Bhagwan Rajneesh or however that name is organized. And I was, I was like, I want to see what he was doing. Not Osho, not after all the scandal who he morphed himself into. I want to know what Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh was teaching. And one of his first books was one called Meditation and Ecstasy. I was like, an ecstasy? Like, no, my meditation is not ecstasy. I would actually consider my meditation practice to be like a chore where I go to be pious, where I go to be spiritual, where I go to not be ecstatic and sexual. It's like where I go to be my, you know, my most pious self. And so, and I read the whole book and it's rare that I finish a book, but man, I read that whole book and he, um, Osho studied with Gurdjieff and Gurdjieff is the founder of the fourth way, the founder-ish of the fourth way. And that's a, the lineage that I study and teach the most because for me, it's just the most, uh, it's a, a unified system and it never tells you anything about the microcosm that isn't directly applicable to the macrocosm. So it's very important to know where you stand in relation to consciousness in relation to the universe, because without knowing where it is that you can advance to or like the relative importance or unimportance of your existence here on earth. If you don't know like where you stand in the scale of things, it's just kind of like a positive mental attitude. And so understanding a unified system of, of scale about like how these same unified spiritual laws apply to everyone and everything as far as the universe goes that to me was something that I could really rely on. And a tenet of the fourth way, something that I really love about the fourth way is there, um, it's very like Jesus's main pet peeve was the Pharisees. And the Pharisees were like the pious people that could basically afford to spend all of their time in church and to give big public offerings. And Jesus couldn't stand this because he said that the Pharisees, their whole method of praying was like, oh, thank God that I'm not a sinner like that person over there. And, you know, the poor people would come and pray and be like, please, like, have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. There was an, an aspect of humility. And 
so the whole thing, you know, it's like, it's a lot when you're doing all of these things, but without in the Bible, it says you have to pray with your whole heart and your whole soul and your whole mind, like every, and that's the only way that like a prayer will work or a meditation will work is like, if all the centers of your body are focused on this intention, like who here has prayed, even if you've never been like a, the type of person that prays, but when you're in a moment of like desperation and you're like, I need help, please. And you're not thinking about anything else at that time. You're just like, I need help right now, please. I got to say the times when I've prayed this the most was when I was running late to work and I couldn't find my keys. <laughs> like I swear to God, I hit my fucking knees and be like, please, you have to help me <laughs> get to work on time. And I would always find them right after that. But in other spiritual traditions, you know, they say like the feeling is the prayer and to conjure up a feeling that can really create an impact. You have to be totally present with it. You can't be like doing something because you're supposed to. And this is why like, you know, vain repetitions was something that when you pray, use not vain repetitions. So an example of a vain repetition would be like quoting the same affirmations every single day without feeling anything. Like when I say, maybe, you know, I just have resistance to this and haven't gotten to this level yet, but the mantra, like I am bountiful, I am blissful, I am beautiful. That does fucking nothing for me. Like when I say that, I don't feel anything like not, there's no feeling. It's not my soul and my heart and my mind. And I find that any affirmation that I'm using all of the time, like it starts to lose its magic with me because I'm saying it all the time. You know, and the reason I'm saying it all the time is because I feel like I have to say it all the time. Otherwise, I'm not going to get what I want. Kind of like I felt like I had to be meditating all the time or I wouldn't get the spiritual results that I want. So anything that we enter into without really wanting to be there isn't really doing anything for us. It's really not doing anything for us. Sitting there for 20 minutes because you feel like you're supposed to actually sets up these conditions where you're doing more damage than good. For example, you're like, I need a, it's always about the intention. So let's start here. Most of the things that motivate us to do spiritual work or go see psychics or whatever is to this question of like, am I okay? Like, am I okay? Am I still good with God? Or is the things that I want still coming to me? Is there anything I have to do more or less of? Is there anything I need to purify or whatever? Like, am I okay? And going into our different spiritual practices with this sense of like duty, like this is something that I have to do because I'm fundamentally so fucked up that without these different purifications and ablutions and prostrations and all of these other fucking weird words, um, I won't be good enough. I won't be good enough. So we go and we sit down in our meditation and we put our 20 minute timer on and three minutes into it, Tanya's falling asleep and I'm bored to tears. And we say, oh my God, like I fucked it up. Let me try this better. All right, let me sit up more straight. Let me get my mantra back on. Let me focus on my breath. Let me do all of these things. And like the energy that we have when we've caught ourselves off guard is usually not one that's compassionate and sympathetic. And it's absolutely, you know, if you understand that the mind will never shut up, or if you understand that you're a mom of four kids, and when you get a moment to sit still and close your eyes, the sleep's going to catch up with you. You know, like you have a minute to get still, get quiet, and you're like, oh God, I'm going to pass out. When we're not understand, like the mind's never going to be quiet because that's not what the mind does. Like the intention of meditation is just to realize that you're not the mind. And what I love about the fourth way is they're like, yeah, you could sit for 20 minutes and do this, or we could make a whole walking, moving meditation practice around becoming very, very clear what the voices of your mind sound like. There's the intellectual center. The, the intellectual center creates like argument and pros and cons lists and rational, very important. The emotional center is where your emotions come from. It's a feeling that can create narrative. It's a feeling that can create an entire situation. There's the instinctive center and the instinctive center covers um, sensation. So all the, and you know, reflexes and everything 
else like that. But sensation, feelings are sensory experiences. And then there's a moving center and that governs movement. So walking and talking and all of these things. And if you're totally aware of like what your mind sounds like, it's a lot easier to know what your mind doesn't sound like. And that's the sole purpose of meditation is just to remember that you're not your mind. It's very, very easy and that you're not your body either. And it's very easy to get really caught up in thinking that like, just because your mind told you something, it's true. Just because your mind's imagining something that it's going to happen. Just because your body, it has its own limitations or you can't prove that something is real. It's not. And that limits us so much, but you could either like sit a lot of people, including me, go to meditation, trying to get the mind to be quiet. And that's never going to happen. It's kind of like your mind is kind of like a crazy person talking on the subway and a crazy person talking on the subway. You know, if you've ever been in New York and you're like trying to get home and you finally get a seat and all of a sudden some like the end is near motherfucker gets on the train and it's like, you don't know this. And, you know, for the first like two minutes of it, you might look up and be like, wow, this guy's really losing his shit on the subway. But then, you know, without paying it any mind or anything like that. You just put your headphones in and go back to your book. And it doesn't matter that he's still talking over there. You don't have to listen to him. You're not taking every single thing on. And in the fourth way, we call this identifying with something. So it's like usually every passing thought we identify with. And we do this even more so in meditation when we're trying to create an impossible condition. And the impossible condition is one where the mind is silent. So when we're getting ourselves in this impossible situation and thoughts start to arise, we identify with it in the hugest sense of the word, because unless you're like very, very practiced and working with a meditation teacher who can totally make sure that you're never taking on any of these thoughts and saying, oh, I'm a bad meditator, or I'm never going to be conscious, or why won't my mind ever shut up? Why am I still so bad at this? Why am I falling asleep? Like it's an optimal cre- a condition to resist yourself and to feel bad about yourself and to self-flagellate. And the, again, like the main intention of it is just to create a little separation between who you actually are and who you think you are, which is the body and the mind. So in these, like the 10 years that I've been really avidly on a spiritual path, actively working on myself, actively trying to make myself a better person, and also sharing that with the world. Um, I started my journey to spirituality started in 2010 when I realized like I needed to stop throwing up my food and that no amount of like physical restraint or therapy or anything like that was going to do it. I had to find out why it was that I had this need to control control, control, control. And that's when I started looking into um, the kind of deeper meanings of life. Before that, I I wouldn't even look in that direction. I started doing yoga and all of that stuff. Um, But it was really, you know, these 10 years of trying to be a good meditator, because there's just like some things that like everybody tells you, right? Got to meditate. Oh, you're spiritual. Do you meditate for how long? What kind? For one time a day, two times a day. Do you do transcendental meditation? Do you have a mantra? Do you do this? What do you kundalini yoga? Like all of these things. And I felt really, really bad for not being a meditator, for not being a meditator that meditated for 20 minutes every day. And my husband is a real timed meditation kind of guy as well. So at home, 100% of the time, you know, and think my husband's perennial advice to me is that I either have to work out more or do timed meditation more. And it used to be that every time I got this type of advice from people, you know, people I loved and people that also like, I didn't even know that were just, you know, talking about their meditation practice. It used to be that I, I, I felt like this really was a one size fits all situation. And that if I just, you know, and in order for me to get results at some point, I would have to become more disciplined and, and be a meditator. And it took me a really long time to start to find teachers that weren't about that. Like the fourth way is about being in a state of awareness. It's about being in a state of prayer. It's about being in a state of meditation. And it brings you to these psychological vantage points where you see yourself in a way that cannot ever be unseen. So like after you've been studying the fourth way for a while, instead of sitting down quietly and meditating and trying to figure out why you behave the way that you do, 
when you find yourself behaving poorly as a fourth way student, you have this interesting vantage point where you are watching your body and mind operate uncontrollably. Like, why am I screaming at my husband right now? I said I wasn't going to do this. And you're watching yourself do it. You're detached from the body and the mind that are screaming and screeching and hollering and you're observing it. And I swear to God, once you've seen your body and mind operate uncontrollably, you have a lot of incentive to start getting those fuckers to obey you. Because you're like, I am now experiencing the repercussions of a situation that I did not want to happen, that I tried to avoid. And like a machine, my body did it on my behalf. And now I have to clean up the fucking mess again, which sucks. It brings you to these places where you cannot help but be detached from your mind and your body because you see the negative impacts of an uncontrollable mind and body that disobey you. And so by doing the right work, like you're, you find yourself in a meditative state all the time and a meditative state where you're like not falling asleep. And because you're like, holy shit, it's, it's horrifying. Like it's, it's called the way of the sly one because yes, it's a fucking huge shortcut. If you want to find out how to meditate all the time, like it's a huge shortcut, but you will face yourself in ways that you've never faced yourself before. And it's very, it's very difficult. Um, and so learning that, you know, learning these new tools, learning how to do better work and simultaneously, like not feeling so bad about myself for not doing it like the right way. Um, I've started to notice that I've always had a meditation practice. It just doesn't look like anybody else's meditation practice. So for example, like something that's pretty, that's been going on pretty regularly for me for the past few years is like when my brain feels too full or I don't know what to do, I get quiet and I ask. I please show me what it is that I'm supposed to do. And if I don't hear something right away, like I don't do anything. And I just ask again later because the answer will always arrive if you ask, but sitting for 20 minutes waiting for the answer, like that's when you're meditating, it's when you're looking for an answer, you're looking for a result from meditation. It's kind of like if you were meeting a Tinder date or you're meeting a date or someone at a bar and you're a little bit early and every time the door opens, you're looking to see who's there. You're watching for something. You're waiting for something. And meditation would be a lot more like sitting by a creek and just watching the water just to watch it knowing that it's not going to change, knowing that there's not going to all of a sudden be a tidal wave rushing through it or like a school of fish. It's just do, you know, you're watching without any expectation. You're watching without trying to get anything from it. So like when we go to meditation with any type of intention, like I need to do this to be good. I need to get, do this to get answers. I need to do this to get enlightened. I need to do this to be a better person or whatever. You're going into it with that energy of watching, you know, where you're basically like jumping at every person and every thought that, that's passing by. And the problem is, is when we're doing it in this place of trying to be really good, every time the door opens and it's not who we think it's supposed to be, we're like, oh, you know, you're so stupid. There you go thinking again. There you go falling asleep again. And, um, and it doesn't work. So there's a, a Zen parable about a man whose uh, purpose was bhakti. And bhakti is like, it's, it's kind of the spiritual practice of being in love with God. And it's a lot of singing and chanting and love poems to God and worship, not in any type of a weird way, but just being like elated about the fact that you can commune with a higher power all the time. And the way that this man expressed his bhakti was he was a fabulous musician. He was a fabulous musician and that's how his fervor, and his devotion would come out. Like when you heard him play his instruments, you just couldn't help but be, but feel like you were in the presence of God. And because his area of focus was instruments, like he never sat down and meditated. That wasn't his thing. And so there was a famous guru that heard about him and came all the way down from the mountains to come and hear him play. And when this man was like, oh, the famous guru is coming to see me and this man meditates 17 hours a day and he's coming to see lowly old me, like, 
I need to impress him. I need to do things right. So when the famous guru came to see him, he was like, oh, let's, you know, let's meditate. And the, the purpose of this parable and the, and the guru was like, wait, no, that's not why I came here. And the purpose of this parable, the Zen parable is like, everyone has a different way of feeling that closeness, of feeling that connection to God. And I feel that closeness and that connection to God the most when like, just at some random moment of the day, I just close my eyes for a second. I just close my eyes for a second or I listen to the birds or I look out the window or I smoke a big joint and sit on my patio and just look at the trees and be like, damn, like this is cool. And that to me like brings me so close to God or like watching my son breathe while he's sleeping because it's like, wow, like is breath literally the, the presence of God? Like is anything that's, is this up and down this respiration, this thing that we never have to worry about? Is this how we can see the presence of God in all things? This, this respiring, like, is this a way, is this actual proof that God exists in something is being able to see it alive, to see it, alive. To see it like pulsing to me these little moments bring me so close to God and moments where I'm like really passionate when I'm, when I'm writing, like when I'm writing something that I'm really excited about, or basically any time when I have a singular focus. So like this morning I was researching um, black maternal death rates and exactly what, you know, it's like exactly why these numbers are so high and being a hundred percent, just focused on something using all of my, I'm not thinking emotionally. I'm not even thinking I'm, I guess I'm in my intellectual center a hundred percent, but I'm not moving. I'm not aware of any sensation or whatever. I'm a hundred percent in the intellectual center, just like feeding my head, learning new things. And just, you know, I can, feel these ideas and concepts going in and creating more questions and putting puzzle pieces together. And like when I'm a hundred percent in a center, like I feel super connected. I feel like I'm doing exactly what it is I'm supposed to be doing, but more so than any input is like when I'm doing something that's creative output and I'm totally in that moment, whether it's, um, whether it's me writing something that I'm really passionate about and trying to find the exact way to articulate things when I'm doing a lecture and it's just like, I, I realize that there's, I don't have any control of what's coming out of my mouth. I'm not doing it. I'm not peeing. I'm not thirsty. I'm not hungry. I'm not anything. I'm just like, whoosh. These are the moments where I feel insanely connected and each of us has our own way and to try and do it like somebody else is doing it. If that, if that musician were to be a meditator, there would be no music. And so there's just some trends that I've noticed in the spiritual community. One that really pisses me off is just the constant narrative around how bad debt is. That's a very like spiritually, I guess, you know, very spiritual concept, but actually from a commercial standpoint, at an economic standpoint, it's utter bullshit. It's actually downright stupidity um, because every successful business is either in debt or has gone into debt. And if you don't believe me, please subscribe to Fast Company and subscribe to Forbes and just hear these glowing reviews of companies like Netflix and 23andMe that have never turned a profit and are billions of dollars in debt. Like big success, you have to spend money to make money. And this like is for all of the spiritual entrepreneurs who probably will not turn a profit in the first two years of business to just hammer it down their throats that whatever success they're going to get has to come without accruing any debt is absolutely ridiculous. It's toxic thinking and being in debt is not a low vibrational state. Like it's not. This is a part, it's only your shame and stuff around it. And I feel like spiritual teachers have a duty to not add to people's shame around that for fuck's sake. Come on. And like when anybody says something like that, I just want you to know that they haven't done their research and they've probably never picked up a magazine or a book about wealth because anytime you're studying wealth, like actual, not just spiritual wealth and like the feeling of abundance, but people who have actually created massive people like Jay-Z 
people who have created massive wealth out of nothing. These people were not pulling the abundance card. They were diversifying. They were getting investors. They were going into debt. They faced bankruptcy. They filed for bankruptcy and they've come out on top. So the, the debt situation is one of my pet peeves, but the gotta meditate, gotta meditate, gotta meditate thing. Everybody with the pictures of them meditating, it's like, it doesn't have to be that way. And so if you find yourself always sleeping in meditation, it's probably not for you. If you find yourself always resisting yourself in meditation or it's not an ecstatic experience, it's probably not for you. But in that five minutes that you have to yourself, you can make a choice of like, what is it that makes me feel the most alive right now? What is it that gets me the biggest results? For me, like being able to take five minutes to like make myself beautiful for the day, put a fresh braid in, moisturize, get an outfit on that I like. The returns for that for me are huge because every time I catch a glimpse of myself in the mirror, I'm like, I fuck me. Fuck yeah, dude. This looks good. You know, like I can, I love myself when I catch a fucking haggard glimpse of myself in the mirror. But when I'm looking like a goddess, I'm like, oh my God, anything is possible for a face like this. You know what I mean? Like I can give myself that little bit. So for me, it like works better to, if I only have five minutes, I'll put a mantra on in the background. Great. While I'm putting my, my glossier on and I'm good to go. And I get those returns for the end of the day. Now, my husband is always like, can't do it unless I have my timed meditation. And like, that's his practice. Everybody has their own practice, but if there was only meditators, there would be no musicians. So what is it that for you generates the like biggest results, makes you feel the most alive, makes you feel the most connected? Some great examples of this are like, and, and I just want to say that like dogmatic meditators, you know, when you tell them like, oh, this is meditative for me, they're just very adamant about like, there's meditation and there's not meditation. And that's just their perspective. The way, the fourth way, so the fourth way, there's three ways that go before it. And the first way is the way of the fakir. We don't have fakirs in the West so much, but like in the East, they're very popular. And a fakir is somebody who chooses to sacrifice the body to gain enlightenment. So a fakir will have their arm raised over their head for 20 years, or they'll be, you know, they won't eat anything for days and days. They, in order to access a little bit of the enlightenment, you know, in order to access enlightenment, they kill off one part of their body, which allow, they kill off their body, which allows them to focus on these other two areas. Then there's the way, so the fakir, kills the body to achieve enlightenment and they miss out on the beauty of having a human body. Like this is the best possible to incarnate in a human body on earth is like the best of the best of the best. Last I checked, honey, a fucking squirrel doesn't have a clit and a squirrel doesn't have a preference of chocolate or understand nice wine versus shit wine. And I guarantee you, I've never seen a squirrel smoking weed. So to be in an in to be in a human body is like, such a gift and to kill that off to achieve enlightenment sucks. Then there's the way of the monk and the monk has to completely suppress their emotions in order to achieve enlightenment, their sexual urges, their desire for companionship, feeling of like, I fucking hate being surrounded by bald dudes in a monastery, making wine for other people to drink. Like they have to completely suppress that and emotions like they don't even come from us. You have to understand that like emotions come from the planet. They come from our soul and it's our jobs as humans to transmit and transform these urges into experiences that, that cause us to ask questions that increase consciousness. So without a feeling, a feelings direct us a lot more than we ever give it credit for. Desire is one of the greatest GPS tools that we have. Joy is the GPS. And if you're completely shutting this off, you're missing out on an incredible experience of life. So the monk shuts down the emotions in order to achieve enlightenment. And then there's the way of the yogi and meditation is an aspect is, is the way of the yogi and meditation demonizes the mind. Now look, your mind is so fucking valuable. 
it's so fucking valuable because it makes pros and cons. It can reason, it can ask questions, it can answer questions. It, the brain named itself, the intellectual center is so important, but when you've made a demon out of your mind and you're always trying to turn it off, get it away from you without realizing that it never turns off ever. All you can do, it's the crazy man on the subway. All you can do is stop listening to it, but you're still going to hear it. When you make a demon out of the mind, you miss out on all of this amazing ability to, to reason and ask new questions and think about things and wonder and, and enjoy film noir or conspiracy theories or anything like that. When you shut down the mind and you're just like, absolutely, no offense to Ventinia Massara, wherever you are, maybe I just have resistance because I don't get it yet, but it's like absolute isness, oneness, the nothingness in the ventures. It's like, yeah, but I like shit, dude. Like I like things. I like asking questions. It gets my pussy wet, makes my nipples hard. I like to think. I like to chew on big concepts. When somebody asks me something that I don't understand, I like being like, dude, let me think about this. How do I feel about this? What? And that's what the mind does. If somebody says like, I, it's a path to enlightenment, but you've sacrificed the mind. So when you have like, when you shut down the intellectual center and someone says something to you and it's like, well, I love you. It's like, okay, all right, all right, all right. I get it. But for me, I love the, the process of, I love my body and I love my emotions and I love my mind and I don't want to. The problem is with these three different paths, yeah, they have gotten it and they, they do have a little bit of something, right? Because usually what happens is, let's say the intellectual center is like the gardener of the house. And the emotional center is the cook of the house and the physical, the, the body is, let's say, uh, I don't know, the nanny. What's usually happening is that the nanny is doing the work of the gardener. The gardener is doing the work of the cook. You're using your emotional center to do business. The cook is doing the gardening and the job's not being done well. Or you're using the intellectual center to try and understand why you're feeling so sad. Well, maybe you're just sad, hon. Maybe you can't control it. Maybe some days emotions wash through you because they're not actually coming from you and trying to intellectualize. Aren't I more spiritual than this? Why, should, why am I in such a low vibration state? That's the gardener doing the work of the cook. And then if you've got one of these people doing the work of the nanny or whatever, like they're all doing the wrong job. So the way of the fourth way says, let's not shut down. It's called the way of the sly one. Let's not shut down any of these centers. Let's train them all to do exactly what they're here to do so that we can have the benefit of a, the fullest expression of life so that we can actually do the most here so that we can engage, you know, and it's funny because way of the fakir, way of the monk, way of the yogi, they're all like, but we are gods. God's not sitting here with his arm raised for 30 years. God's not whipping himself in the back because he wakes up with a heart on. And God is not saying the mind is so bad. The mind is so bad because God created the mind. So to be able, you know, in all of these paths of saying like, we are like God, we're like, God, no, but there's a little bit of God like in us. There's a little bit of God in us. And if we're, and we're able to access that when we step away from the things we think we are and, and focus on what it is that's real about us. And so to close this little question out, I'm just going to tell you some of my favorite ways to get the most out of 30 seconds that I have to myself. And when I can remember to do these things, I don't beat myself up for forgetting to do these things because, you know, I'm human and I want to be human. Like I understand that there's, it's like St. Augustine, like, dear God, make me perfect, pious and chaste, but not yet. Like not yet. I'm here in a body. I want to enjoy it. I don't want to be totally, you know, I was thinking, I'm like, there's a place inside of me that's free from insecurity. That's free from, um, you know, worrying that I'm a bad mom. That's free from all of these things that I deal with, but also like, I'm so happy that I don't live there all the time. I'm so happy for the moments that I get. I'm happy for a good shit. You know, I'm happy for great food. I'm happy to do all of these human things that make my life, that make my life just exciting or enjoyable. I'm happy that I get to do all of these happy that I'm not like God. You know, I, I chose to incarnate in a human body and I'm hell bent to enjoy it. Um, so 
if you're wanting to get like a really good med, let's say like you want to do one meditation a month that gives you enough that you're like, yeah, dude, I fucking did my meditation. Doing a really intense pranayama, even just uh, like Kapalabhati breath is, is something that you can learn. Breath of fire, 300 exhales. Take 300 exhales and that's what Kapalabhati breath is. Um, and that'll be about three minutes. When you, uh, when you create a state, it's very easy to create a psychedelic state through breath. And I forget where it was, but I just, oh, it was in the trailer for school season two, if you haven't seen it yet. But I taught the very intense pranayama for releasing DMT into the body. A little bit of that in that fucking moment after that breath work, you're meditating at the highest level. Like you have no choice. When you see your body glitching out like that, you're like, damn, how am I watching that? And I'm not dead. Like, how am I able to do it? Create, it's a, it's a state that triggers a lot of questions for you because you've seen and felt with your own eyes and also not your own eyes and your body, but also not your body that like, this is not all there is. So feeling of being able to trigger a psychedelic state through breath work creates like meditation happens spontaneously when the body and the emotions and the mind are exhausted. So if you can, that's why meditation always comes after yoga and the Ashtanga primary series. If you can, and I used to, in order to get in a meditative state, I used to always have to do an hour of Ashtanga yoga first to get my body and my mind and my emotions to quiet down enough to experience that. But once I learned there was quicker ways that didn't involve 52 chaturangas, well, I started doing that for sure. <laughs> and when I found there was a way to have a great body without doing 52 chaturangas, you better believe I fucking signed up for that shit too, because I'm telling you, time crawls and those things. Um, but those, so pranayama of any kind, and a great way to experiment with new types of meditation and new types of pranayama is kundalini yoga. Don't fucking freak out and take it too seriously. Take every, the way of the sly one says, steal everything you can from a teacher. Steal it. Steal it. Find new ways of getting yourself ahead without having to ask everyone for permission. Go and teach it. Go and learn, you know, find, steal from every teacher. Take a bit here, take a bit there and make something new out of it. Be sly. Um, so Kundalini Yoga, I love that for learning new pranayamas because they've just got so many in that technology. And then my other favorite way, and this is whenever I'm feeling, this is a very specific fourth way tool. It's an aspect of self-remembering. Um, in the fourth way, they say that if you can remember yourself at a difficult time, and in the School of Unified Spiritual Laws, I'm showing you in every single one, like here's a place you can be conscious that'll do way more for you than 10 years of meditation will. Here's one way that you can view yourself or here's, you know, it's psychological vantage points that you cannot unsee once you've seen them. So it's just bringing you there because then if you spend even one second in these spaces where you're viewing yourself from a higher level, it changes everything. So my second favorite way is when I'm feeling, when I have a moment or when I'm feeling like problems are overwhelming, I like to view myself from above just like an aerial view. And it might take some practice at first if you're not really used to um, visualizing, but I always do it. I just start with the part of my hair and then it's like a drone going up, you know? Start to see myself from the top of the room. Then I see my immediate surroundings. I see where my husband and my son are right now. And when I view myself from above, I realize that there's never a problem that's not in my head. And here's a really good question for you. Is there ever a problem that's not in your head? Like when we're dealing with an actual problem, let's say like there's been an accident or you need to go to the hospital or something like that. Like you're not thinking about other things. Like you're totally, you'll, the law of imagination will be doing this in season and the next trailer of the School of Unified Spiritual Laws, which comes out on the 13th, about the law of imagination. It's really going to be a cool one. Uh, super string theory, fourth way, and we'll end, yeah. Um, but the law of imagination says you'll never imagine yourself succeeding. You only ever imagine yourself failing and then the repercussions of that failure and la, 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 la. When we use imagination in a positive way, because everybody always loves to be like, wait, like, isn't imagination good? 
The difference between imagination and visualizing is that you have control over what you're visualizing and imagination just takes you on any fucking roller coaster that you want. Imagination is also defaulted to failure. So you never imagine yourself succeeding. You always imagine yourself failing. And I heard Sage Robbins say one time, like they were in a very serious, almost plane crash. And uh, she said, if I'm going to die in a plane crash, I'm not going to spend the last five minutes of my life worried that I'm going to die in a plane crash. I'm not. And so a lot of times we'll spend all of our great time here in a human body on earth worrying about possible outcomes instead of having a nice wank, smoking some weed and taking a little walk. You know, we'll be like, oh, we can be so in our head. So when I view myself from above, it's really easy for me to see that like when I look at my existence here, when I look at what's going on, here I am sitting in meditation, safe in my home, my husband and my son are safe. When I woke up, everybody that I knew was still alive, 250,000 people die a day. None of them were people I knew. What a joy to be here in life at this moment. When I view myself from above, I see that there's not a problem that's not in my head. And if there's a problem and it's just in my head, like I can do something about it. But just seeing myself from above shows me that like I'm safe, like shit's good right now. And, uh, all, and I always end it with the, the very Louise Hay mantra, all is well in my world. All is well in my world. And it's true. When I say that to myself, especially when I've just seen my situation, like, look at where I am. I'm here. I'm pregnant with my second child in a relationship with someone I love in a house that I love. And when I try to think about what's stressing me out, it's like, okay, someone I don't know in my phone, which is like over there said something that I don't like. And I'm wondering if just because they said it, it's actually true about me. And I'm churning mentally over it. When I view myself from above, I see like, oh man, I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. All is well in my world. And so uh, those are my two favorite places. Uh, that's my favorite ways to get a lot out of a little bit of time. Um, I really recommend like the School of Unified Spiritual Laws season one and also season two. But if you haven't done season one, do it. Like, it's so fucking good. This, this information doesn't exist anywhere else. And if you're, if you want results, if you want results and you're willing to put in the work, and I'm not talking about two hours every single day of meditation, I'm talking about like, come and do one, two hour lecture every two weeks. Think about it for the next two weeks. <laughs> I'm seeing uh, Tanya's journal. Um, think about it for the next two weeks and watch what happens. Watch what happens and understand like where you are in the great scheme of things. It's the most, I, the reason why I'm doing it and I get shit from fourth way teachers all the time because the fourth way, the guy that started at Gurdjieff, great guy and everything, super powerful teacher brought such great teachings to the world, but he was also a fucking megalomaniac that wanted, that worked very hard to make teachings more complicated for people. And I understand that maybe like a hundred years ago or whatever, this was cute or, but, but now when I see teachers purposely making it hard for their students, it's very rare that I think that this has anything to do with the well-being of the students. It's just a, a teacher not wanting people to catch up to them. Because if, they, if their students were to catch up to them in a year, when it took them 15 years to learn something, then like, will they have a job? Will they have superiority? Will they have, you know, 50,000 followers doing whatever they tell them? And, and I just don't think that the truth needs defending. I don't think that spiritual teachings are finite. And I believe that when you teach something, you master it. And so a teacher can get so much further ahead if they make it their mission to do what teachers are here to do, which is save people time. Like if all teachers were playing this like old school fourth way game where 10 year program, there's no way you can succeed. It's 10 years of your life has to look like this. 10% of your income, impossible to understand. Like, yo, we need these teachings now. And this is the age of Aquarius. And honestly, honey, if you're not the one revealing the secrets, someone else will. So you might as well be the trailblazer. Deal with the fucking old, old fuddy duddies. Oh, I can't believe I use that word. But deal with the people that are going to have a hard time with it. And do your fucking job. Make it easier for people. So like I paid $15,000, which I did not have extra of. 
because these teachings, the teachings of the fourth way are oral. Someone has to open the door for you and then you can go self-study, but it's not possible to understand these teachings if you're just trying to do it on your own. Believe me, I'm like the DIY queen. If there's a way of doing it myself, like I'll find a way to do it. But I've read a lot of fourth way, read Gurdjieff, read Osho, and it just all sounded like code to me until I paid a teacher 15 grand. And my sessions with her literally looked like, okay, I've been reading this book. What does this mean? What does this mean? What does this mean? And what does this mean? And then she would like tell it back to me in some code. And I'd spend two weeks like dissecting what it was that she told me, finding new questions. But it was just having a human dictionary for fourth way terms and how to apply it to my life, not just like how to apply it to life, like how to, how this affects me, like what forces are at play, like with me. So if you're not a meditator, you don't have to be, you might be a musician. And as long as you're trying to do it the right way, you're not doing it your way. So if it feels good, it's what you're supposed to be doing. Cool. <laughs> 50 minute answer. <laughs> But I saw that, but there was actually like only two questions that were on the question sticker. And so, but this is uh, something that I'd been wanting to share with people for a long time because being a bad meditator had plagued me for a really, 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 really long time. Um, so the other question that someone put up was having difficulty accepting and loving people who have different views on relationships than you do. And We'll use a little bit of fourth way terminology on this one, but I get, I get different variations of this question a lot. And it's basically like, I've realized there's people around me that I can't change and I can't deal with that. And a lot of us feel this way, like with our families, now that there's a major dissolution of the ego going along, like basically all of the illusions and stuff that we've been living under for the last 100 years, the flaws in these systems are becoming really apparent. And a percentage of the population, it's about 20% of the world's population is like, this is bullshit. And the other 80% are like eating it up. <laughs> like eating hook, line, and sinker, taking the bait on every single thing, not asking questions, hostile around. I can't believe how big your baby's getting, Reem. Hello, Aya. I can't believe how big this baby girl's getting. Um, eating it up, hook, line, and sinker. Hostile when people mention other ways of doing things, very resistant to new information. And, uh, you know, the worlds have already started to split. We're living in different worlds. And so... Anytime you're trying to change somebody else, there's inner work that you're supposed to be doing that you're not doing. Anytime you're trying to change somebody else, you're not loving them either because love is a nice, big, flowery, difficult to understand term for like accepting people as they are without trying to change them. The most loving thing that we could do for anyone, and I wish I knew this when I was dating a heroin addict, but the most loving thing that we could do for anybody is accept them exactly how they are. Think about like, if you were to come and sit on my couch, hopefully not if you're on Bruja Report, but if you have a friend that's always, you're like, oh man, she's so inspiring. She's so motivational. And every time I hang out with her, I like just feel like being the best version of myself. And I've got my big to-do list of all these things that I can do and all these ways that I can be better. And, uh, you know, sometimes I feel bad calling her because the last time she gave me some piece of advice that, you know, PS would take 10 years to really implement. And that person probably hasn't achieved it yet. Um, but I feel bad coming back because she gave me advice and I didn't really use it. And it starts to be someone that you feel bad being who you actually are around. But then you have like your best friend, your best friend that you can like greasy gray sweatpants, fart and eat takeout with your friend that never makes you feel bad about yourself, that you can confess your deepest fucking insecurities and the evil thoughts and the fact that you're jealous of this person. You think this person's a bitch. You can say all kinds of things to your best friend that you would not, you could never say to anyone else. And when they leave, you know, it's like they walk out of your door and within five minutes, you're just, you want to send them a text message that's like, I fucking love you, dude. Like, I fucking love you. You're my best fucking friend. Like, that's love. The motivation and you can do better and you can be better and there's so many things that you could be doing and you're just not doing it now. That's being in love with your potential. That's not being in love with like who you are. That's being in love with your potential. And that shit's fucked up. Like, I wish I dated a heroin addict 
And the whole time I was just trying to get him to not be a heroin addict. I was just trying to get him to not be a heroin addict because heroin's so bad. Honestly, like if I could do all of that over again, I would say do as much fucking heroin as you want because it's not my business. I have my own shit that I'm supposed to be working on. And honestly, if I was doing my own shit instead of worrying about your shit, I would ask myself the kind of questions to be like, why do I think being in a relationship with somebody that I cannot trust who's stealing my money and taking up all my time because I have to take him to rehab every day, like, why do I think that this is the best it's going to get for me? And the only way, you know, no matter what you say as a teacher or how well you articulate your beliefs, like the only way that you can actually effectively teach is through being a different person, being different. Like if you want to know like what's the right message to share with the world right now, one of the most powerful things that you could share with the world is that there's a way of living fearlessly. There's a way of being like untouched by all of this shit that's going on around you. There's a way to be jubilant and joyful and sucking the marrow out of life and living regardless of how disempowered society is telling you you should be feeling right now. And like the best way to teach is to just be different. And I'm telling you, like my family had a really fucking hard time with me when I was coming out as a teacher, because honestly, I was always trying to fix them. You know what you need? This thing that I did. If you just put, if you just read, you know, whatever I was on at the time, if you just read A Course in Miracles, if you just learn how to manifest, if you stop being so negative, if you fucking look into holistic healing, blah, 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 then you can be better. And that just created a huge wall between my family and me, because I was always putting myself on a pedestal saying, I've learned so much more than you have, and you should come and learn from me. But the only time my family actually started to pay attention to what it was that I was doing or give a shit about what I was doing was when I stopped trying to change them. And I just became a person that was less ruffled by what was going on, was less ruffled when they would say shitty things to me, was less ruffled when somebody that could listen to them vent about how sad their life is without trying to change it. And when you have become a different person, when you've become a different person, People start asking how you did it. And that's your greatest selling point as a teacher. That's the greatest way that you could position yourself as an expert is to actually be a different person. You don't need to go and help people that aren't asking you for your advice because if you change how you're being, they'll ask you how you did it and then you can tell them and it will be valued and it will be appreciated. But you're a lot more powerful of a teacher if you can let people fart and bitch and be themselves around you than you ever could motivating people to be better than they are today. Because a very like masculine, a very solar teaching to always be improving and fixing. You know, who here has noticed that when you want to have a big bitch to your man about something, sometimes they're like, oh, well, let's just do this and let's just do this. And you're like, ah, no, like I just want to. It's the difference between masculine communication and feminine. It's why I like only pray to divine feminine now because uh, you, with divine feminine, you come as you are. You don't have to have an intention. You don't have to have a business plan. All you have to do is show up and tell her how you're feeling. Because as you start to speak your truth about like how uncomfortable you are right now and how unsatisfied you are, even though you should be grateful for everything that you have, because compared to Syria and refugees, or it's not that bad. And like, you're not being honest with yourself. You're trying to censor yourself to a presence that knows you better than you could ever know yourself. It's totally pointless. And so when you are communicating with feminine, when you're communicating with divine feminine and you're allowed to just show up and be broken and not have solutions, that's when you find the real answers because like that's the energy of, of surrender. So how do you deal with people that think differently than you? Don't worry about them. 
anytime you're worrying about them, you're not focusing on you. You're not focusing on the things that you can change. And I'm telling you, honey, if you haven't realized that you've got a lot of fucking work to do because you're basically like a big robot and your body and mind don't listen to you, like this is the brutal nature of the fourth way is you realize like, I've got a lot of shit to do. And the Bible, you become as a little child again, you become contrite, you become humble. It's not being humiliated, it's being humbled. And you stop praying like the Pharisees that are like, thank God, I don't have the problems that my friends do. And you pray like, please, I am nothing. I've got so much work to do, but you know everything and you see everything and you're working on my behalf. Please, God, come down to me. Not I am God, we are God, we have God powers. Please, I am a fucking shell of a human being, but you know me and you see me and you control everything and you're down to help me. So please, Please help me. You're praying with all of your soul and all of your heart and all of your mind. And this is how results actually happen. So I can't believe that we have a one hour Q&A session, 23 seconds remaining on a live broadcast. I want to thank you all so much for being a part of this Q&A session. You can find more of my work at everestasher.com. And uh, yeah, have a wonderful day. So nice to see y'all. Oh, and we've got a podcast coming up about vaccines with Jamie. She's a vaccine expert. So if you ever wanted to go full tilt anti-vax, incoming, y'all. <laughs> Thank you all so much for being on this call. Great to see you. Love you all so much. Bye. Have a wonderful day. Thank you.